You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Ephesians, be back in Ephesians this week, which I'm really excited about. Anybody else excited about Ephesians? Good, good. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 this week before we go in there. I would like to pray for us in that regard. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the message of Ephesians and uh, just your work in and through the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter from prison to a church that he helped to plant. People uh, whose faces I, I trust he could clearly see in his mind's eye as he wrote these words. But even bigger than that, um, the faces of people that you, Father in heaven, um, were thinking about as you directed Paul to write these words. All the way through to today, where we study this book, this letter, I know that you have your sights set on each one of us in this room, each one of us who is hearing this message. And Father God, I pray that your spirit would do a transformative work through the preaching of the gospel this morning. God, I pray that you would that you would open hearts and minds, that you would reveal deep-seated desires and wounds that, that you wish to fulfill and heal. God, I pray that you would take us um, where we're at this morning uh, and reveal by the power of your Spirit uh, ways that we um, view ourselves that are unhealthy, sinful, ungodly. Help us to see ourselves the way that you see us. Help us to catch a redeemed picture and a redeemed view of who you say we are. You have seated us in the heavenlies, Father, through the power of Christ. And I pray for everyone here that we would hear that message loud and clear, that you would help us to be captured by you. And I pray those things. I pray that you would give us deep confidence. In Jesus' name, and everybody said... Amen. So that is the question I want to start off with is this question. Where does your confidence come from? Let's think about that for a minute. Easy Sunday school answer always is? Yeah. It's true, and we need to hear that, and we need to preach that to ourselves every day, every moment. It is true. Yet, let's not move on from the answer too fast and not drill down deep, right? Ask the question again deep down inside of you. Where does your confidence come from? When your parent is dying, when your friend's marriage falls apart, when your sibling loses their job, when your child dies, when when a friend suffers abuse, when your finances are in ruin, when your friend stabs you in the back, when your child rebels, when you give into that sinful pattern once again, when your physical health fails, when when your physical health fails again, where does your confidence come from? in those moments when you're facing deep, hard suffering? How do you look into the face of suffering with confidence and stand firm? How do you not give in to the temptation in those moments to just toss in the towel and just give up, just walk away and just retreat? How do you encourage other people to stay strong when they're facing suffering? The one thing that the world doesn't need, 
please hear me when I say this. One thing the world doesn't need is Sunday school answers, okay? Well, that's true. We need to trust Christ, and that's what you're going to hear all the way through this message. The last thing that our world needs is people who just say, just trust in Jesus, and then walk away. What the world needs the most, I think, are Christians who are facing suffering and hardship with confidence and are able to spell out what that confidence is rooted in and what it looks like to be confident. What the world doesn't need is a bunch of Christians whining and pining and sitting behind the enemy lines retreating, right? What the world needs is a representation of Christ in the bride of Christ that walks with confidence in the cross of Christ. That's what the world needs. So I ask again, where does your confidence come from? Paul drills into this in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes or eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom, catch this, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, I have to be really honest. I had this outline to preach all 13 verses to you today. <laughs> Most of you feel really afraid right now, right? <laughs> like, oh no, we're not going to be able to eat lunch. <laughs> um, it's just the way it was outlined uh, in the way that I outlined it previously. And, and I'll be honest with you, as I read those 13 verses, initially at first sitting at my desk in my study, my first uttered prayer was, oh Jesus, please help me make sense of what just got said. Because I think if you read that, um, it'd be pretty easy to kind of pass on by what Paul is saying here. It's kind of be like, okay, I get some things, uh, but a lot of that sounds like gibberish. Uh, if I'm going to be honest, even for, for me, I love to study, I love to read. As I first read it, I thought, 
what am I going to preach out of this, right? What I began to learn is that verses 12 through 13, the last two verses, uh, where Paul says that we, we have boldness and confidence through our faith in Christ, so don't lose heart when you see me suffering from you, that's really kind of the key um, to this section of Scripture. What Paul is saying is that we have confidence in Christ, so don't lose heart in suffering. Don't lose heart when you face suffering because your confidence is rooted in Christ. Question, how could Paul say this? How how could he say this? He's sitting in a prison cell. There's a massive disconnect for us sitting in this room between us and the Apostle Paul. We think, well, Paul wrote scripture. Paul was like a hero of the faith, right? Like, Paul was a, like, I can't be like Paul. I, I, I'm in a completely different category from Paul. I just want to say to you that Paul was no different than you or I. No different. You or I may not be sitting in a prison cell this morning, but let me tell you, every one of us walked in this morning feeling like we are trapped by something. Every one of us. I don't care how long you've been a Christian, 15 years to 15 minutes, 15 seconds. Every one of us walked in this morning feeling like, man, there is something that I am trapped by, that I struggle with, that I can't seem to get past. There's something that I want so bad that I can taste it that I can't have, which leaves me feeling like I'm living in prison. I think we can make a connection that way. The question about Paul, though, is how can he say this? Like, was he, was he secretly dreading his circumstances? Was he sitting in that prison cell pouting about his circumstances? Is that the picture that you and I have of Paul when we think about him? Was he secretly plotting to find relief from his suffering while encouraging his readers and his hearers to remain confident, right? Remain confident. Me, though, I'm secretly dreaming about how I can relieve myself of this pressure, this pain. This Was that Paul? I don't think so. I don't think that's the picture that we have of Paul in Scripture. I think Paul had found the secret of remaining confident amidst his own suffering. And I think that that perspective for Paul enabled him to exhort his readers to live the same way, to do the same. But how, right? How? How does Paul not lose heart in the midst of facing his suffering? I'll be honest with you. As I studied, I found eight observations from this text I can see the pale white faces around the room. We get two today. (laughs) We're going to do two. We're going to do two, and then over the course of the next few weeks, we'll continue to unpack, um, hoping that this just really drills deep for each of us. So how does Paul remain confident in the midst of suffering? Number one, Paul had a redeemed view of himself. Let me say it again. Paul had a redeemed view of himself. Over the first two chapters of this letter to the Ephesians, he's drilled deep into the roots of our identity issues, right? 
He has a picture in his mind. Put yourself in Paul's seat for a minute. It's a picture in his mind of where his listeners are currently seated in terms of their identity. And what he wants to do is he wants to move them. He has a picture of where he knows they are seated in Christ. He also has a picture of where he knows they think they are seated in Christ. And he wants to move them, pick them up out of that chair and set them over in the chair that they are actually seated in. He wants to drill that deep into their minds and into their hearts because he knows that their identity is actually rooted in Christ. He wants to take them there, wants to lead them there like a good doctor right? Like a good doctor, I think the Apostle Paul sees the sickness in his patients. He wants to help them become healthy. Like a really good teacher, he sees the deficiency in his pupils, right? He wants to build them up sufficiently. Like a good pastor or a good shepherd, he sees the danger of the places that his sheep are feeding at. He wants to move them into a safer and healthier pasture. Like a good physical trainer who sees the, the weakness of his trainees, he wants to help them become stronger. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing. Like a good parent, a good parent who sees the immaturity of his children and wants to help them become mature, the Apostle Paul wants to build his listeners up in maturity begins with identity. Confidence is a major identity for every one of us. Confidence is not just something for the person who is more afraid than the other person next to them. Confidence is an issue that has plagued the human race from day one. The reality is that Adam and Eve lacked in confidence. And if you look at the story of Adam and Eve, I would pick on the man a little bit there. Because the guy stood by like a passive flake while his wife was grabbing the fruit. And then went right along with the sin. Right? So, confidence has been an issue that has plagued the human race from day one. You might be here thinking, I'm a pretty courageous person. Might be true, but you still lack confidence somewhere. You still walked in feeling fearful or insecure of something. And what happens with confidence issues, when we lack a Christ-centered confidence, it leaves us living in fear of something. No matter how much you try to cover it up, we all struggle with some fear of something deep down inside, especially in the face of suffering, right? One well-placed wound can derail our identity. One, just one, one well-placed wound can derail our identity. We can lose sight of who and whose we are in Christ. We begin to, begin to live out of a false sense of confidence, a false projection of confidence, kind of a, like a, a macho bravado sense of confidence, like a professional wrestler who we all know is faking it, right? Okay. When we try to protect ourselves from suffering, we put a fake face on. Listen, confidence is to the soul what a foundation is to the house. Confidence is to a soul what a foundation is to a house. It keeps the soul steady in the midst of a storm. It keeps the soul from crumbling in the midst of suffering. 
When, when, when confidence is lacking, the soul is actually shaken and fearful and insecure. And if you can, if you can weaken the foundation with one well-placed blow, just imagine what years of strategically placed blows can do to the soul. Especially if they're not repaired properly. Imagine, imagine with me for a minute the festering wounds, the crumbling walls that begin to form over time as each new blow is taken over and over and over again, right? Imagine what it looks like when those blistering spots are just ignored, covered up, giving placard answers like, hey, get over it. Jesus is your strength. This is the picture of a broken, unwounded, fear-filled soul whose identity is lacking in Christ-centered confidence. Confidence is what enables us to face suffering head on. Confidence keeps soldiers pushing forward in the midst of of suffering and and war and hardship, right? Confidence keeps them moving forward. Confidence helps us to stand firm in the midst of turmoil and confusion. Confidence causes men and women to face their sin without flinching. Listen, the entire world hides their sin. Or at least tries to minimize it and pretend like it's not what it is. Woe to the church for doing the same thing because we lack confidence in the cross of Christ. Confidence is a thing that keeps you and I from retreating or quitting. And the Ephesian church needed confidence. Why? Why did the Ephesian church need confidence? Well, they lived in a culture that was at war, number one. They were being attacked from all sides by worldviews that tried to water down the truth of the gospel that they had been taught through Paul. They were being persecuted just for being named as Christians. There's a disconnect for us in that. We don't get persecuted for being called Christians today. On top of all that, there was a big glaring issue in the church as well, especially for the Gentiles. It was a glaring issue of being a marginalized and insignificant, quote-unquote, subset of the population. The Jews in that day regarded the Gentiles as being second-rate citizens. There was this hot debate that was raging out of control as to whether the Gentiles could actually be part of the church and what it took for them to be part of the church as well. Blazing out of control. On top of all that, get this. On top of all that, the champion apostle, the senior pastor, you could say, the hero of the Gentile church, Paul, is locked up in prison. Locked up in a prison cell, waiting a death sentence for his stance on integration, really. Now let me be clear. For Paul, the main issue wasn't integration. The main issue to be addressed with the Ephesians wasn't nine steps to becoming a valued member of a church, 
Uh, it wasn't five steps of becoming a better citizen. It wasn't 10 steps for navigating conflict or three points for how to endure persecution or six steps for healing your marriage or changing the cultural worldview. The main issue for Paul was gospel-centered confidence in this section of Scripture. Gospel-centered confidence. He wants to instill a healthy, Christ-centered confidence into the identity of his listeners. He wants them to grasp this. He wants them to get it. He wants them to live it, right? So, where does Paul begin? Where does Paul begin as you look at this passage? (laughs) What is his first baby steps into developing Christians who walk in Christ-centered confidence? Here's what I think he does. He starts where all of us begin, ourselves. He begins with himself, with these words, for this reason, I, Paul. This might strike some of you as strange if you think about it. Ha, the great apostle Paul preaches the gospel so well. Why does he start with himself? I think, I think that when we are struggling with confidence, we typically start with ourselves. Um, we say things like, man, I just, I just lack in self-confidence, right? Or, or when it's somebody else, we say, man, that person just really needs to grow in his self-confidence or her self-confidence. So like a good missionary, the Apostle Paul, who knows how to meet people where they're at, begins with himself, okay? But don't, but don't let Paul's words fool you either. Don't let them fool you. Don't, don't walk out of here thinking, oh, it just all begins with me, because it doesn't. Because it's not about you and I, it's really about Christ, right? Paul knows that Christ-centered confidence doesn't rest in self. Self-confidence is actually the enemy of Christ-centered confidence. Let that sink in, okay? What the world throws at you and I in its pop psychology way of coming at the the human development side of who we are and how we are, right, is is contrary oftentimes to what the gospel preaches and teaches us. And the gospel teaches us that self-confidence is actually an enemy with Christ-centered confidence. Just like self-esteem. Self-esteem is the enemy of Christ-esteem. You cannot have both. When Paul begins with himself, and and I think in his own little disarming way, and he invites his listeners to think of themselves, what he has in mind is this word called redemption. Redemption. He's referring to himself in his redeemed identity. He knows his story. And his Gentile listeners know his story too. What do we know about Paul? Paul used to be Saul, right? Paul used to be Saul. He was an enemy. He was a murderer, the chief terrorist of an anti-Christian organization. Saul was the big man on the block. He was the thug who had all the power and prestige you could ever want. He had fortune and fame. He had success and job security. He was respected. His name was Saul. His name, Saul, literally meant tall. Big man. Tall Saul, we could call him. 
to all Saul. If anyone could say that they had tons of self-confidence, it was tall Saul. When that guy walked in the room, you felt the presence of his arrogance and his self-centeredness, his selfishness. This is, this is the way he had built his life. Tall Saul could top the charts when it comes to self-confidence. I ask this question. Did you think about Paul's story? Think about Saul? Wasn't Saul really just a scared little boy? Wasn't he? Deep down inside, for all the self-confidence that this man exuded, was he just a scared little boy? Didn't this so-called tall Saul really just live in the shadow of his own fear of failure, thinking that he would fail God every day, right? His picture of God was so messed up, so jacked up. And he really just struggled with inferiority, insignificance. Isn't that why he hunted down people who believed differently than him and murdered them? And you and I may be like, well, none of us here are hunting people down and murdering them. But let me tell you, we do this with our words, right? We do this when somebody disagrees with us. Do this with our words. This was Tall Saul. Tall Saul was a man who used people to advance his own selfish agenda. He had an agenda. He had things that he wanted. And by golly, don't stand in his way. He will take you out. Live like a wolf. Didn't live like a shepherd of Israel. Live like a wolf. That's what he did. Self-confidence is the enemy of Christ-centered confidence. This is what makes Paul's opening words so intriguing and life-giving to me as I think about this. I, Paul. The reason this strikes me so strongly is because when, when Paul introduces himself as I, Paul, he's no longer tall Saul. He's not that man anymore. Now his name is Paul. You know what the, the, the meaning of the name Paul is? Small. Small Paul. He went from being big man on the block, tall Saul, to being the littlest man on the block, small Paul. The man whose humility would overflow out of him when you were around him. Don't hear me wrong. Paul could say some harsh things. Paul could say some harsh things. Small Paul went from being tall Saul to small Paul. When God knocked him off his high horse of self-promotion, he crushed the old man. He crushed tall Saul. And he reformed in him this new man named small Paul. The name Paul means small. When Paul calls himself by that name, he's referring to himself in his redeemed state. Paul's confidence in the face of suffering, confusion, unmet desires, it's not rooted in himself being good enough. Paul didn't sit around asking the question, when am I ever going to be good enough? That did not capture Paul's thinking. His confidence was rooted in Christ being 
more than enough. That's what captured Paul's life. Not, when am I going to be good enough? Not that, but, guess what? Christ is more than enough for me. That's what captured Paul. That's where he was stuck at. That's where his confidence flowed from. Paul had come face to face with the one whom he had persecuted. When Jesus knocked him off his horse, Jesus didn't say, hey, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? Paul came alive that day. Paul was confronted with the earth-shattering presence of loving grace. This is what had transformed and changed Paul. In a moment, he was radically transformed. Paul had a redeemed view of himself. See, when, when I struggle with confidence issues, um, it's really easy for me to get into this mode of uh, um, accomplishment. Okay? Anybody else there with me on that? Like, what do I need to accomplish next? What do I need to do next? What do I need to just get done next so that I can feel more confident? I, I'm a goal-oriented person. I like to get things done. I like to feel like I'm succeeding. I love to conquer a task, finish things. None of that is necessarily bad or sinful either. That's the hard part. It becomes sinful and destructive when I pursue success to build my sense of self-confidence. Like, yes, I accomplished something. I got my check mark on my chart, right? You guys know me. Church planting. Parenting. Marriage. And for me, those have all been good sources of change. Don't hear me wrong. Um, those three areas, church planting, marriage, parenting, I could probably list others. Uh, it, it's not that my confidence has been built. They have not been built by the pursuit of those endeavors. If my confidence were based on my success in church planning, <laughs> I would have bailed a long time ago. <laughs> church planning pastoring is like getting up and drinking five gallons of rejection, going off to work, and then before you go to bed, drink another five gallons of rejection and go to sleep. That's, <laughs> I would have bailed a long time ago, okay? My confidence cannot be built in my pastoring, my job. That's how you guys could apply that. Same for you when you go to work. Work's tough, right? I love my job. Don't hear me wrong. But I deal with the same things you guys deal with, just like Paul deals with the same, th- same things we deal with. So if my, if my sense of confidence was built in my job, my role, my work, I've been done. No confidence based on my ability to work well or to be able to produce results well. Uh, If my confidence was based on my success in parenting, I would have tapped that a long time ago. My success was based, my confidence was based on success in marriage. I would have derailed a long time ago, okay? Changing my success rate will not improve my confidence. Changing my success rate will not improve my confidence. My confidence level is only as strong as the object in which it is rooted in. I am a weak person. I'm a weak person. But I'm redeemed. Saying that song today. I'm redeemed. Twice owned by the God of grace. Created by him and purchased by him at the cross. 
twice owned by the God of grace. I am redeemed. Just like the Apostle Paul, I know that my identity is rooted in Christ, not my success rate. Certainly not in my circumstances. Paul had a redeemed view of himself. And it's that same view that I need when I struggle with confidence. It's that same view that you need when you struggle with confidence. The truth is, is that we have confidence in Christ, so don't lose heart in suffering. One of the things about preaching uh, that I've learned over the years is that it's good to view preaching like a conversation with someone. Good to pause and ask questions. Good even when you're writing what you're going to preach and saying what you're going to preach to somehow anticipate what the person across the table from you might say in this conversation. As though you were opening the Bible with a dear trusted friend who was struggling with something, right? And you're saying, brother, sister, man, let me, let me, let me bring this to bear. Let's study this together. Oftentimes there becomes a disconnect, though, because y'all are sitting out there and I'm up here and it kind of feels like a spectatorship rather than participatory. I would just like to say that you can do what we're doing right now in conversation. And in fact, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's not just supposed to be that you hear a lecture, you pull three fine points out of it, and then you walk away and go, yeah, it was pretty good, and, and two weeks later you forget it. I mean, I'm going to forget what I preached two weeks from now, most likely. Okay? I'll tell you what helps me drill that deeper is when I have actual intellectual conversations with people about this. That's why our gospel communities are good for me. I know many of you get to experience that too. That's why it's so helpful. comes alongside. We need to hear the proclaiming of God's word. We also need to be discussing it. And so the way that we are, you're hearing me preach, think about it like a conversation that I'm having with you. Part of my job every week as I get ready to preach is to try to envision everybody in our church family say, how would this speak to my wife? How would this speak to my kids? How would this uh, speak to Patrick and Kimmy or to Brandon and so on and so forth, right? That's part of my job as a shepherd. If I didn't do that, who am I preaching to? Figments of my imagination? That'd be stupid, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, 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 that wouldn't even be faithful. <laughs> I'm just going to preach to whoever might listen. No. I, I preach to people with faces, just like God doesn't just preach to figments of his imagination either. He wrote his word to you, not just to whoever might be out there, right? I love that aspect of preaching. And I just I throw that out there because when Paul is writing this, again, He's not writing to the Ephesian church like, well, I don't really know who's there anymore. He knows who's in that church. He knows what they're walking through. And he wants to remind them that we can have confidence in Christ. Don't lose heart in suffering. Number two, uh, Paul knew who he was captured by. He says, for this reason, I, small Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. This, this is an amazing perspective. A prisoner for Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Amazing perspective coming from someone who is wrongfully imprisoned on false charges. Put yourself in that place for a minute. Put yourself in that place. Wrongfully imprisoned on false charges. Be much easier for me if I'm in that place. I'm imagining myself there. Much easier for me to write an angry letter to my friends. Angry Facebook post, click, zing, gone, right? Much easier, uh, 100 and, what is it, 40 character Twitter post. Man, I hate this. This really, really sucks. Would somebody please get me out of here? And then I have to go back and probably change it because it'd have too many letters in it. It'd be easier to do those things because that's the culture we are in. And that culture has existed since the beginning of time. 
whine, pout, complain about our circumstance. It's what we do. Hey. I'm certain if you can put Paul, translate Paul into our day today, okay? Let him sit right next to you. Here's what I think we might think he would say. We might think that he would say, and I would rather be living in a cush home, nice warm bed, nice wife by my side, 2.5 kids. I don't know why it's always 2.5 kids in the American culture, but it is. I don't know where the half a kid is. Charities are a half a kid. <laughs> Where's Charity? <laughs> She's short. Four-stall garage, couple of SUVs rolling in there, right? Nice heater. I mean, this, I think the Apostle Paul, if he was here today, would rather have that than have the prison cell he's in. Trumped up false charges, getting ready to face execution. Yeah, it's a crappy place to be, right? The thing about being in prison is that it feels inescapable. Never going to get out of this. Circumstances never going to change. It's always going to be this way. Right? Feels like you will never get away from what you don't want. It's like you are captured against your will. You want something else so bad, but you can't have that. You're captured against your will. You are in prison. You're never getting out of this. It's the feeling that you walk around with. Right? Had it your way, life would be different. Circumstances would be rainbows and unicorns. Be married, successful in business, smarter, wealthier, healthier. Whatever your picture of heaven is, that's what you would say I'd have it right now. And not being able to have that means I am in prison. And what do we do? We sulk, we pout, we complain. And then we translate that picture of how we behave onto Paul and think that somehow that's the way he's seen in prison. It's not the picture I have of the Apostle Paul. Paul sees his circumstances or his lot in life as being under the control of his loving Father in heaven. It's not, not just that he's a prisoner for Christ because of the gospel he preached, though that's true. He's a prisoner for Christ because he belongs to Christ. He actually belongs to him, and he knows it, right? And he lives out of that identity. I belong to the king of the universe. He is risen, risen indeed, and that's my dad. That's who I belong to. That's Paul. Paul knows there's a greater purpose for his captivity. There's a plan that is beyond his understanding. Just think of the guards. Think of the guards that, that guarded the apostle Paul. What do you think they observed in him? Think about that. If we're having this conversation around the table together, let your thinking go there for a minute. What do you think they observed in him? Do you think they observed a guy who sat around complaining about his situation, or did they encounter a man who praised in the midst of his situation? We know the story, right? Paul and Silas in prison. What did they do? They praised so hard the walls came crackling down or something, right? And then somebody got saved because of it. Man, what about that? But that's the way we praised in the midst of our suffering to the extent that other people saw us praising with reckless abandon. Instead of, man, I can't believe God told me I have to live this way. God. Right? What possesses a man like David, who lives the sinful life that you know he lives, 
What possesses him to write in Psalm 119? Your commands, I delight in them. Your rules, I clap for joy, right? What, what, what possesses that man to do? Because he, he knows the heart of God. He knows the heart of God. He knows that God's commands, his rules, his precepts, his laws are there to keep him safe and healthy. So he delights in that. Same heart that we see in the Apostle Paul as he sits in prison. These guards didn't see him trying to find a way out. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't see him trying to dig out underneath. They didn't see him trying to sneak out through the window. What they saw was they saw a man who was content in his suffering. Content in that. They didn't observe him looking for bargaining chips to change his circumstances. They saw him thanking God for his circumstances. What if, what if you and I did that? Uh, thanks for the suffering that I'm facing today, God. I know that you are using that to change me and transform me into the image of your son so that others might see you. I think that's the Apostle Paul's heart. I think that's what the guards experienced. I mean, Paul was human for sure. Don't get me wrong. He's human. Had thorn in his flesh. He struggled. But he was a redeemed man, and Paul knew who he was captured by. Listen, I haven't read any books lately that encourage imprisonment as a way of getting what you want. <laughs> okay? I, there's no books. There's no books that says, get your best life now by going to prison, baby. It's, it's not out there. It's not out there. <laughs> when I think about the things that I want, the life goals that I have for my life, um, imprisonment and death by execution don't make the list. True. Haven't had anybody uh, like encourage me to pursue those kinds of circumstances either like as a way of growing my confidence. But I will tell you this. I will tell you this. Um, when I am fearful, when I am lacking in confidence, when the circumstances around me are dismal at best, okay, you all know what that's like, dismal at best, right? Um, when I am afraid or insecure, my future, my, my closest and godliest friends, I'll draw attention to some of them now. The guys on my advisory board that serve as our external elders, um, man, they remind me of the confidence that I have in Christ. They remind me of who I am captured by. Here's what they don't do. They don't strategize ways to change my circumstances. They're not like, well, Joe, maybe you ought to go find a, a higher paying job somewhere. Could you imagine if that was the conversation we had? Like, that's not, not the conversation we have. Maybe you should pastor a different church somewhere. They don't do that. Uh, don't, they would never say, hey, see, having a rough week in, in your marriage. Find a different wife. Like, they don't do that. It would be, be, be asinine, wouldn't it? I mean, no, that's not happening. My closest and godliest friends, these men, they, they, they don't outline steps to becoming a more successful father. They don't, they don't lay out principles for becoming a more successful pastor. They certainly don't encourage me to pursue sinful things so that I can get what they want. In fact, they drill the ever-living heck out of me when they see sinful tendencies pop up. Why? Because they want to protect me. They're really good friends. That's what makes a really good friend. 
That's what Paul's doing. These guys, they remind me that I'm a prisoner for Christ. They remind me that I am captured by Christ in my momentary circumstances. They remind me that, that I am waiting for the day that I get to step into Christ's presence in heaven. They remind me that heaven is not now, heaven is then. They remind me that these moments now are not about me. At the moment that I began following Jesus, I became his prisoner. I became captive to Christ for the purpose of bringing glory and attention to his saving work at the cross. I am captured by Christ to proclaim the power of the empty tomb. I am captured by Christ to live confidently with the hope of heaven. My life isn't about what I want anymore. My life is about what Christ wants. Don't get me wrong, I, I still struggle with sinful tendencies, uh, but my life is not characterized by the selfish pursuit of what I want. My life, like Paul and like my Savior, who hung on that cross broken and bloodied, is now characterized by dying to myself daily. True confidence isn't rooted in what I do or do not do. True confidence is rooted in who I am imprisoned to. True confidence is not rooted in what I do or do not do. It's rooted in who I am imprisoned to. Question, who are you imprisoned to? What are you imprisoned to? What are you enslaved to? Who are you enslaved to? Who is your master? Reminds me of an old Metallica song just right there. Wow. There's a few of you able to get that, and that's okay. <laughs> True confidence is rooted in who I am imprisoned to. We have confidence in Christ. So don't, don't lose heart and suffering, friends. I have a video that I want you to watch as we wrap this up. Check this out. I'll see. 
Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car creams into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't, don't say, it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day, Focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for.
every millisecond of your suffering in the path of obedience, he said. It's an interesting caveat. In the path of obedience, your suffering in the path of your disobedience is called a consequence for your sin, right? Um, all the suffering you face in the path of you walking obediently to God's commands is producing something. Of course, you can't see it, he says. I'll suffer in many different ways. But one of the things I don't ever want to do is like go on the record. I mean, deep down inside, I don't want to go on the record um, to be known for the sin that I struggle with. Like, not many of us in here want that, right? Not many of us have confidence in that or, or want to walk that way. I don't want to be known as a man who struggles with selfishness or lust or anger, impatience. I don't, I don't want you to know how sinful I really am. That's really what I want. Ooh. You okay? Everybody all right? You're okay. <laughs> We're going to get that going eventually here. <laughs> We're going to find us some ladies that, ladies that want to teach kids. Oh, <laughs> uh, where was I? <laughs> and if you guys knew how many times I entered a lustful thought this last week, you'd be disgusted with me. You know how many times I entertained an angry thought? How many times a harsh word crossed my lips? How many times I entertained selfish fantasies about my paycheck or my workload? You'd be horrified. You might be tempted to tell me how cowardly I actually am. <laughs> and you'd probably be right. I don't think, I don't desire, I don't behave confidently or courageously as often as I would like to project to you. But here's the thing. I'm not captivated by my sin. I'm not captured by my sin. My eye is not focused on sin. I'm not a prisoner to my sin. Sin does not define me anymore. It's not who I am. It never will again. My confidence doesn't rest in me. I die to myself daily. I am defined and identified by Christ now. I am captured by him. My name is rooted in Christ. I am a Christian, and in Christ, I am confident. I have no other confidence to stand in front of you today other than Christ. His confidence at the cross is what enables me to face suffering of all kinds. His confidence at the cross gives me confidence to pick up my cross. I, I, I would never want to pick up my cross and carry it. I, I never would do it had it not been for the confidence of Christ at the cross to pick up his cross for me. That gives me my confidence. When a friend mischaracterizes me, blames me for his sin or her sin, I can live confidently in the, the shadow of the cross. I can behave lovingly towards my enemy in that moment. I can. I don't always, but I can. And I want to. I, I really want to. That's a change. Before Christ. I didn't want to. I wanted to kill people. One of my kids disrespects me. I don't have to fly off the handle to make them respect me. I can patiently 
gently, interact with them confidently. When I struggle with my sin, I can resist it and walk in repentance because I can live confidently in the shadow of the cross. I can live with confidence in the shadow of the cross because I know who and whose I am. I don't need fig leaves to cover me up even though that's sometimes what I want. I don't need to hide. I don't need to hide my sin even though I want to. I don't need to pretend like I'm better even though I want you to think that I am. Have confidence in Christ. Therefore, I do not lose heart in the midst of suffering. There's no pride here. There's no room for pride in the heart of a Christian. In Christ, big people become small people, and rebellious people become captivated people. Is that you today? In the face of suffering and pain and sin and unmet desires, are you confident in Christ? When your parent is dying, when your friend's marriage falls apart, when your sibling loses their job, when a child dies, when a friend suffers abuse, when your finances are in ruins, when your friend stabs you in the back, when your child rebels, when you give into that sinful pattern again, when your physical health fails again, is your confidence rooted in Christ? Because the truth of this passage is that we have confidence in Christ, so do not lose heart in suffering. Paul knew this. His identity was rooted in this. And when the circumstances of suffering drove earth-shattering blows to his soul and to his heart, he stood confidently. He knew where he sat with Jesus. His confidence was rooted in Christ. His name was rooted in Christ. His ability to face his circumstance was rooted in Christ. This is how Paul was able to say this. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ, so don't lose heart when you see me suffering for you. I pray that he would give us all that same kind of confidence this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word from Ephesians. Thank you so much for challenging us and encouraging us. Father, I just beg you to give each of us a Christ-centered confidence, a confidence that is focused and rested and secure in you, who you say we are. Help us to be captivated by you, captured by you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.